Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we discuss books that are about archaeology that anyone can enjoy. I'm your host, Tristan Herrenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hello, everybody. And today we are finishing up the last segment of In Small Things Forgotten by James Dietz. Now, if you're following us, uh, keeping up with the release schedule, you might notice that we're a little late this time. Nature has basically told us to hold off a little bit. If you're following, we had a hurricane, Hurricane Idelia. Turned out not to be too big of a deal for us, but it definitely disrupted things enough around here that we didn't get things recorded on time. So we are doing it now. And so just be a few days late. I have noticed or has occurred to me, actually, as we do this, though, our discussions with Four Lost Cities and how recurring natural disasters is ultimately like a kind of a death knell for many large cities as, as they currently are. And I wonder how this is affecting our communities, considering that hurricanes seem to be getting more and more severe lately. Yeah, I would be interested in seeing how after, you know, the last couple hurricane seasons we've had and the more severe and more frequent storms we've had, how it will impact things like building codes, where people decide to live, like are people not going to be so gung-ho to move and be on the coast? We'll see. But and I know it's interesting, too, because we've also had the pandemic which has brought a ton of people to Florida. So not only do we have these very intense hurricanes, but we have a bunch of people who don't have the experience dealing with them. So sure. we'll see in the future how this affects our cities. Yeah, and for like the bigger cities, like they can bounce back a little bit better sometimes, but the smaller communities we've seen firsthand, they have trouble coming back from even one hit of a big storm. And if they end up getting multiple, I'm a little concerned about them. To be yeah. Frank. yeah, it's pretty early in the hurricane season for uh, all these storms. You look at the hurricane maps and there's usually several tropical depressions and tropical storms out there just waiting for us. Well, and we still have some small communities in our area that's recovering from uh, Hurricane Michael, what, four years ago? Yeah, tw- well, 2018. So Okay, five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a, a big devastating one. That, again, missed us here just barely, but hit a lot of people very directly and uh they're they've recovered a lot like visually you won't see much but there's still i know a lot of economic impacts and such going on in those areas too so in short anybody who's listening who has been affected by the hurricane we wish you the best um there are plenty of resources out there please take advantage of them that's what they are for and well let's hope for no more hurricanes sure enough yeah (laughs) Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, please make sure you like and subscribe. That kind of feedback is nice for us to see. Also, if you are listening to this as a podcast, please give us a review uh, for the same reasons. That also helps other people discover us and it makes a big difference for us. But without any further ado, let's jump into our book. So we start off with chapter seven. The next two chapters of this book specifically are all about African-American archaeology which I'm impressed to see it as developed at this point as it is. Of course, he came back in the 90s and redid some of this, but even in the 90s. I was going to say that even for the 90s, this is pretty impressive. Yeah, and I know there's been a big stride since then, too. So this is pretty cool to see how much work has been put into this. The chapter starts off with a very nice description of why he thinks it's so important. I won't read the whole thing, but he does a very, words it very nicely. Essentially, he says something along the lines of people in the situation of the uh, enslaved people in the Americas 
didn't have the means to often keep their own history and the people who did keep any of that history had, you know, other motives and other perspectives. And so archaeology is uh, to gain a true understanding of the story of a people. It is best to detail a picture of their life within a community and then relate that back to the larger world. It is in this process that archaeology can contribute in a significant way. And that's kind of something you've heard Barbara and I talk about before, that the untold story is where a lot of the power in archaeology is. Because everybody leaves a trace. Yeah, everybody leaves a trace. And of course, you know, there's people that do document history and write about what they're experiencing. But that always has some inherent bias, no matter how hard they try to keep it unbiased. It's just the nature of written word. And the researchers doing historical research try to account for that bias, but it's impossible to do entirely. And then they have their own biases. And it's not to say that archaeology is entirely unbiased either. To be clear, it has different biases, and that's why it's such a strong combination with historic records. I was going to say, yeah, using historic records in combination with archaeology, I mean, some people might argue with me about this, but I feel it's about as accurate as we can get when it comes to getting as close to the truth. Sure. So this chapter focuses on a specific settlement and a specific group of men in particular in this case. It seems like at least some of them were married, but the wives are not much talked about in this portion, at least. Probably because we start off by looking at what we know from the historic records and frankly shows how little we know about their lives. So kind of the main person he talks about here is Cato Howe. Cato Howe, you think? I think it's probably Howe. H-O-W-E. So you can gauge if I said that wrong or not. And essentially how most of these men show up in their service during the Revolutionary War in America. And essentially they fought for their freedom. So they, in exchange for fighting, they were given their freedom at the end of this. And then they have a few records of their lives, kind of when they got the property that they got together, um, when they applied for assistance for economic hardship. And that's kind of about it. Anything else stand out to you in particular in that portion, Barbara? No, I mean, the records seem very spotty, which honestly, you would expect for a soldier, especially a black soldier, right? I did find it interesting that he says that the four families kind of lived on this land with permission from the town. And, you know, it was poor quality for farming. And he talks about how that could have led them to require government assistance and things like that. So it seems like a very kind of informal settlement situation my understanding it was almost more like a homestead situation yeah like they owned it but basically the town said anyone who clears this area can have it like the homestead act yeah and it seems to me that the appearance i got when i was reading this is that people just kind of let them do their own thing they didn't really bother anybody they kind of kept to themselves and i guess you know when these soldiers fought And they fought for essentially their freedom. After that, they were just kind of left to their own devices. It's like, thank you for your service. You're free. And I figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, how can you expect anybody to thrive in that situation? Right. What sounds like they, by and large, did. It didn't sound like an easy life. No, it definitely wasn't an easy life. But I feel like they... They found their way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so at some point after these four men died, the property was put up for sale by the town and no one bought it. So the town has owned it ever since. In 1975, so 
three years before the first version of this book was written. And it was during the bicentennial right. of that community. They started an excavation, kind of a research project. And it sounds like they had a committee on black history that was particularly interested in the cemetery that was associated with this property, which I know there's some oral, and I wish he was a little bit more clear about this, that there was some oral history and there's some photographic evidence of the structures, but I was unclear as to how much of the structures survived when they were starting this project. It seems like none. None. Okay. That was my understanding. Yeah. And I think I, I get why it was a little confusing. Um, my understanding of what was going on was he was kind of revealing information in the order it was revealed to the researchers. Yeah. And so, you know, he would say one thing and then a few lines down, there was someone who came forward who had some memory that clarified what was actually going on. Yeah. So it seemed a little contradictory. It could be a little hard to follow, I think. But I think I, I got that, what's, yeah, what he was doing. It seemed like there was no standing structures left. Right. And in that case, then the cemetery, especially if it was marked burials, would be the only above ground evidence besides written documentation that right. this community once existed. Which they didn't have much of at first either, it sounds yeah. like. They, yeah. Again, they had some more pop up as they were working. And this is another instance where I thought, or I wish he would have provided the photo. He talks about mm -hmm. this photo that somebody found, but he never actually puts it in the book. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> nice to see. Like, would have been helped kind of right. ground the descriptions and everything. You're yeah, right. yeah. So they started their excavation, mostly because there was so little known, but they're going to do a memorial that's been decided already, I think. And the only visible feature, he says at this point, only visible feature is a cellar hole. Right. Although... Frankly, when they do several other excavations, he said there was a shallow depression. So there were other visible features. Maybe the land wasn't cleared at that point or something. Or some, you know, sometimes people go somewhere to have lunch and like, oh, this is a little bit of a depression. And then you, you find it. So maybe they didn't see other features at this point. Yeah. And like, I have no idea. I mean, we're in Florida where you don't keep land tidy and well kept for a couple months and it looks like a jungle sure. so i don't know what the environmental conditions are here but i would imagine it's probably similar situation where the lot is was overgrown but i will mention the fact that it was never used for anything else it makes for great archaeology it really because does. it m probably minimized the disturbance of the soils and I will say it's really cool because you and I are working on some bicentennial planning for Tallahassee. So when I was reading this, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I know that African-American history is a big part of the bicentennial planning here as well. So it was just interesting to me because it's so it, it's been a while, <laughs> you know, we're still having those similar conversations. You sure are. Yeah. So they start their excavation uh, centered around the cellar hole that they could see. That's a very typical thing to do. Uh, if you're going to start somewhere, start with things that you think are probably some sort of feature, and then you can kind of figure out what to do from there. And so essentially they found that there was a house built partially over it, and they decided ultimately that this was actually lived in after these original four men had died. And so essentially there's a descendant named James Burr who lived there, uh, he's, they say, in 1895, but it sounds like he was there until the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Oh, he, sorry, he moved there in 1861, though. So he'd been there quite a while. But there was maybe a 30-year period where this site seems to be unoccupied, based on what they're describing. Yeah, and I guess he moved there because he wanted to live near his grandfather's grave. Right. And I guess his grandfather, I believe, was one of the... Uh, Turner. Yeah. Plato one, Turner. Yeah. But I thought that was interesting... 
he didn't mention exactly how they knew that was his reason for moving there. Yeah, they're either ha- so some of this came from he uh he calls them informants, yeah. which is a little odd phrasing, but people that's, who have some memory of That's what I used to call it when I did uh cultural resource management. The that's what the the site file form calls it. It was okay. like your informant. So I don't know if that's common Sounds phrasing. Like you're doing spy work or something Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, we call them local informants. Sure. So w- what they decided had been going on was there was an original building, fairly small, like was it 12 feet by 12 feet? Yeah, I think Something so. close to that yeah. at least. And that was the original building probably of from James Burr's grandfather. And then James Burr built the addition over it. And then they decided that the cellar must have been part of that addition as well. And so they knew that because they were looking what artifacts are present in the cellar. And it was all stuff that was much, much later than the original uh, group of men would have had. Oh, going back to our conversation about the informants, these are just individuals that have some oral or some memory or information to pass along about the property. But he does go into a really good conversation about how there can be conflicting information or, you know, people might have the wrong location for some things and conflicting dates. Uh because I know there, the structure was burned at one point and there mm-hmm. were conflicting dates about when that structure was burned. And I will say I've used informants before and I for uh, a local cemetery here, African-American cemetery, actually, we used local informants and we were looking for unmarked burials. And one of the gentlemen remembered going to a graveside service in this one area where no graves had been documented and there was no slumping, like there was no surface evidence of the burials. So I was like, hmm, you know, I don't, uh, we'll see. And we had it uh, checked out with canines and then um, GPR. Sure enough, that man was spot on. There was evidence of burials there. So, you know, it's really important not to discount information, even if it seems conflicting or it doesn't seem like it's going to amount to anything. It can. Yeah. Like history, historic records and archaeology, it has its own biases, but it is valuable as another source of information, right? Uh, and in, in this case, the final informant, he, I think the only one, he, the final one he mentions says they remember the house being moved and someone being there up into World War One, which essentially there's no indication otherwise that that is accurate. Yeah. And I, I, when I was reading that, I would feel like there would be a lot of, I mean, I guess it depends on where it was moved, how far it was moved, how it was moved. But I feel like there would be a lot of evidence of that on the landscape. I think he's probably right in that something's been misremembered in there or the location isn't quite right in the memory. Memory can be very tricky and reliable in, you know, just a few minutes, let alone over 100 or 75 years or whatever. Yeah, there could have been a house down the street that was relocated that looked very similar to this one or something like that. Right. But he does a nice talk about how you know, conflicting evidence isn't uncommon, but we want to keep it in mind. And that's true. Even in archaeology, you'll find conflicting evidence sometimes. And that's honestly sometimes the most important stuff. Yeah. Figuring out why it's conflicting can be very, very interesting. Yep. You know, I love a good history mystery. That's right. (laughs) So next, like I mentioned, they found a shallow depression and did an excavation. This was another cellar, uh, 12 foot by 12 foot. So notice the use of 12 repeatedly here, because that becomes important. And it had two walls lined with stone, and one was boarded. And the, but the artifacts date it to the first half of the 1800s. And so that's before the site was supposed to have been occupied, basically. And so 
their guess here is that the people, the original four families that lived here were buying secondhand or were maybe given some of these things by other people. Yeah, which seems pretty logical. Um, But I think it's a good point to be made that this is why we look at the whole artifact assemblage and the Mm -hmm. site as a whole rather than focusing on just specific artifacts. Yeah, because he notes, too, that some of these ceramics would be thought of as a higher social class than, I think, applied to these individuals or economic class. That's, yeah. Well, probably both. Probably. I yeah. guess. And so that's that's the thought is that these were secondhand or gifted to them. And, and he kind of makes the point like you can't just take that stuff at face value. You have to kind of consider the whole picture. Mm-hmm. They also found two unglazed earthenware pots, which open up a whole can of worms, it sounds like. Yeah, these are kind of cool. They are. And so they uh, they trace them to potentially the West Indies, although the tradition, the way they were designed may have started in West Africa. So it could have come to this area through West Africa. It could have come through trade of goods. It could have been a cultural, something that was retained culturally. I don't think they have the exact answer here. But the indication is that some way this is still tied to African traditions. At about the same time, they were finding in other sites in these regions uh, some similar pots. Uh, One was at a trading port. Another one was at an African-American community. And so that gives you some indication that this might have been cultural or West Indies, both, really. And so this kind of raises some important questions, like how much has been adopted from the European culture and how much has been retained? It's a bit challenging to identify different cultures in this situation because they're using the exact same materials. And so what he demonstrates throughout this chapter in particular is that you have to look at the patterns for how these materials were used. And we'll kind of give some examples of that as it goes on. Even though it's the exact same pottery, exact same whatever, the same wood usage and that kind of thing, but the way they used it was different than a lot of other groups. Even the way, you know, animals were butchered can be insightful. Exactly. And I, I'll want to talk about this, I think, next chapter a bit more, but he says, assuming wholesale adoption of Anglo-American culture is ethnocentric. And I'm like, yeah, bingo. Yeah. It's never that simple. Right. And I, that's what I was just going to say. Of course, it's not simple. And of course, again, it goes into our own biases, but we may not immediately recognize something as being unique to a different culture, especially if they're using similar materials, right? We're just going to automatically assume they're using it how we would use it. And you can't do that. Not in archaeology anyways. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I, I was interested because some of this was pretty well established now that some of these traditions were retained. I was thinking, uh, and we'll talk about this, uh, burial practices and use of coins as tokens and um, various things that were, we have a site here in Florida with the tabby cabins. Kingsley Plantation. Kingsley Plantation, yes. Uh, They found some objects buried in the corners and then in the doorways, I believe, of some of the cabins there that they think were tied to some traditions being retained. But it seemed like at this time, this was a bit of a revelation. And it was interesting to see that they actually figured this out so quickly, too. You know, again, I would have thought this was a little bit more recent than than at this point. One of the things I've enjoyed most about reading this book, because some parts of it are a little dated, is seeing how things that you and I know to be truth and to be fairly evident to archaeologists today weren't always so. And I mean, this was 
really not yeah. that long ago. So it shows how much we have learned in a relatively short time period. An overarching theme for the book, as we've talked about, is that historic archaeology is its own discipline and it is worth including in research. And yep. for example, like at this point when he's, especially when he's originally writing this, but even in the 90s, that was very much a question of if there is there any value in this stuff. I feel like some people still question that. Yeah, well, if even in the 90s, if they were, you know, if they hadn't read some of these, this book, then you're not going to convince them, right? That's true. Yep. Some people because you this just... pretty well answers these questions. Yeah. And there's people out there who you're just not going to convince. And that's right. okay. So a third structure is excavated, once again, with a shallow depression as the reason they started to dig there. So they found a rectangular pit, and this is uh, 12 feet by 9 feet. Once again, you see 12 present, and this is where he starts to talk about how 12 is uh, smaller than the 16 foot standard of Europeans in the area at the time, although 12 foot apparently is within range of variation, as he says. But as he kind of talks, it seems like he kind of convinces himself more and more that this is actually kind of a, a standard for African-American traditions. Yeah, and I would like, I mean, I know these structures were more vernacular, but I would be very interested, and this is me just wanting to totally nerd out about this, I would be interested in learning more about like milling techniques at the time, how wood was processed into planks and what sizes those planks are and stuff like that. Was there a reason? Was 12 foot, you know, significantly less expensive than 16 or, you know, it could be more space. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. And I mean, there could be cultural reasons as well, but there could also be very practical reasons. That's, I had a couple points of that. It's like where it's assigned cultural, like there could be some practical ones. Right. And it could be both. It yeah. could be both. Honestly, it often probably is. Yeah. <laughs> he mentions, so in this, he thought it could be a dwelling, but it had no heat source, which was problematic. And I was immediately like, what about like wood chimneys? Because that was a thing. Right. And he doesn't make any mention of it. And it kind of killed me because he kept bringing it up and saying there was no heat source. And like, does he, is he even aware that this is a thing yet? And then finally he does mention it later in the next chapter. But I'm like. Yeah, he went, I feel like he kind of mulled over that a little excessively because it's pretty common. And then he goes into such great detail about these chimneys. And I'm like, well, why didn't we just go there? Why didn't we start (laughs) with that when you mentioned it the first time? Or at least say no sign of that too. And then leave the discussion for later. But the fact that it's not even acknowledged. Maybe wonder if they even knew to look for it, you know, and it turns out seemed like they did. Right. (laughs) But then he also assumed that those chimneys wouldn't leave a trace at one point. Like, I bet they would. Maybe hard to spot, but I bet there'd be something of like burned clay or nails. uh, I mean, if a an open fire pit from prehistoric sites leaves evidence, then I feel like a chimney, even a wood one of some sort, would leave some something. Right. And if they're on stones, you should find some evidence of that. Or if it's on the ground, again, either way. So I'm not sure I quite buy that reasoning, but the fact is they didn't find any. So I guess that's what we have to work with either way. And then he starts talking about shotgun houses, which is a term we use a lot here in the South for a smaller home of a certain period. I don't think they're common anymore. Yeah, yeah. this was interesting because I guess it's in the next chapter. He kind of goes into more detail about what shotgun houses are. Yeah. I mean, we can jump ahead if you want, or we can keep chatting. Let's, let's save something for the next chapter. All right. 
but they're very cool and the history right. on them is very interesting yeah but it's interesting that these are a little bit out of order in the conversation it seems like almost right yeah i feel I mean, these two chapters are some of my favorite chapters just because this is something that is a personal interest to me but and i think also i'm somewhat familiar with things like shotgun houses and stuff so it wasn't a big leap wasn't disorienting yeah yet. but i feel like if someone's like a shotgun house what right. is this why are we all of a sudden talking about this when we were talking about you know these pits and stuff uh, yeah it could be a little maybe we should talk about it for our, our <laughs> listeners we could yeah so yeah let's go ahead and do it so a shotgun house is a house that has entrances on the small ends of the house so it's a rectangle with entrances on the small ends and essentially the story is it gets the name shotgun house because all the doors are lined up as it goes through three or more rooms throughout the house so you could shoot a shotgun straight through it. He thinks, and I think he's got a good possibility there, that it's actually derived from an African word for house. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably far more likely. So that just contrasts between the shotgun style house and at this time the European style house, which had the doorway typically in the middle of the long side of the house. Right. And another thing about shotgun houses, too, is they didn't have like a central hallway. Right. You had to go through one room to get to the other room. So, again, we had this discussion on privacy a while back, but not necessarily the most private of uh, architectural designs. And on the note of why these chapters might feel a little disjointed, I did find out that the next chapter is the only chapter that's entirely new for the version we are reading. So the original version of this book didn't have that chapter at all. And I couldn't find any copies of the original to really check, but based on just the synopsis for the chapter reading now, I suspect it was a lot smaller. And so that could be kind of what's going on here is kind of some of the rewrites might have confused this a little bit. That makes a lot of sense, honestly. Yeah. See, he also observed that the location of the houses was different from the Anglo-American methods. They tended to spread their houses out Whereas these four houses were kind of clustered around each other. Yeah. I wish he had provided a map of the site because I would be interested in what this looks like on the ground. Yeah. Because if, say, the properties on a relative slope, that might change where you place your houses. Even just the geography of that parcel could be a reason the houses are close together, right? Sure. I mean, he doesn't mention that, so that might not have been a factor. But us as the reader... We don't know that. <laughs> but it would just help us to orient yeah. a bit, too. So that if we were the editors, our feedback would be right. more pictures, please. Yes. So food remains were another thing he noted. There was no evidence of sawed bone, but there were a large number of cow's feet. And he says this might have been a sign of poverty or have been a cultural preference in cuisine. But, you know, whatever the reason, it was just very, very different. But I think it's an important point to make. You know, a lot of times we see something that isn't what we would regularly eat or it's not prepared the way we would eat it and we make assumptions based on that that reflect more economic mm -hmm. traits when it could be more cultural right and it's always the possibility of both too but mm -hmm. we need to make sure we keep those possibilities in mind and by and large he does a good job of that yeah especially in the next chapter i observed and this is kind of you don't have to go as far as he is necessarily but i think this is one of our the things we were having trouble with in Four Lost Cities was 
there wasn't enough of this or admitting unknown or some possibilities, or even if you think you know, you know, there should be some acknowledgement of the possibilities. So he does a good job of that, maybe a little more than it's necessary sometimes, but this is also kind of a book for archaeologists, I think, too. So I think he has good reasons for that. On Parting Ways site, before the excavation started, the only location of anything of the human habitation was the cemetery. And 1978, I noted, because that actually would be when this book was published, so it wouldn't have been included as part of the original. Yeah, so the book was originally published in 77, so this would have been discovered after the original book was published. So this gives us some sign that there is some ed edits and additions in this chapter for sure. Uh, across the, the modern road, they found a large area of covered impact paving stones. And some of the edges were well-defined, some less so. In the leaf litter on top of these paving stones, they found 7,000 artifacts. And so many of them were so complete that they actually could put most of them back together. And so they concluded that these were broken intentionally. And this, of course, makes sense to a lot of us here in the South in particular, because this is very common to find on graves, uh, African-American graves in the South. So what people were doing is part of the burial practice is breaking glass bottles or ceramics. He says sometimes they punched a hole through the bottom, but he doesn't use what I would, the term I would use to describe that. Was, so we would call that killing the pot. I wonder if that applies to African-Americans or maybe that's an, uh, Native American. Yeah, I've always used it to refer to Native Americans, but I, I would be interested in knowing the cultural reasons behind that before yeah. I would use the term for African-American ceramics in yeah. that tradition as well. Yeah, so that could be some cultural overlap or that could be coincidence. I, I'd be very curious to see how that came about. And so the sheer number of broken things leads them to kind of figure out that this is probably actually where the original inhabitants are buried. This is actually a burial ground, even though it's nothing like what we would imagine with the pavers and everything. Yeah, the pavers kind of threw me for a loop. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been a place where they held the funeral without the burial even. You know, that's possible too, I wonder. But then this calls into question the known graveyard, which is a known graveyard, but it has, essentially it has slate headstones, which apparently is pretty unusual for the time period when the original inhabitants were at this site. And so what they think may have happened here is that this graveyard might actually be a smallpox cemetery. And there are other cemeteries in the area for smallpox victims using very similar markers, which is interesting. I think he established it well enough, but it definitely could have different interpretations, especially with more information. I'd be interested to know if there was more discovered since even, too. Yeah, I... Honestly, I meant to look into this site more, but I didn't get to it. Right. Hurricanes and all. <laughs> yeah, there was a hurricane <laughs> that would require internet. Right. Didn't have that. <laughs> but he does a good job of talking about how the excavators were working with particular Anglo-American assumptions when they started. And as new information kept coming in, as they kept getting witnesses to talk about the, what happened, as they kept finding more information they kept having to readjust their assumptions. And that's good. I commend them yeah. for making that realization. That's the way it's supposed to be working. Right, yes. I think a lot of times people are, they assume because somebody has changed their viewpoint or changed their 
methodology or, you know, gone back and made adjustments that it shows weak research or something of that sort. And no, that's good research. That's, that's good methodology. That's science functioning as it intended. Right. Yeah. And so we finish up this chapter with a quote I really liked when he's talking about the people living at Parting Ways. The archaeology tells us that in spite of their lowly station in life, they were the bearers of a lifestyle distinctly their own, neither recognized nor understood by the chroniclers. And again, that sums up the importance of archaeology pretty darn well, I think. I would agree. All right. So moving on to chapter eight, this is the last full chapter of this book. The last chapter after this is kind of a conclusion chapter. Yeah, it's like a wrap up. So this is titled The African-American Past. And as I mentioned before, when I looked up this book, especially the original one, this chapter is entirely new. And so he talks about how African-American archaeology, he has seen it gain momentum. And so this would have been written in 1995. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And he talks a little bit about how African-American descendants didn't simply accept the dominant Anglo-American lifestyle and is actually far more complex. And that's actually something we have seen time and again, archaeologically speaking, too. One example I remember very clearly is during colonial contact periods, uh, Europeans would often gift like metal axes, iron axes to Native American people. And you would maybe assume that this would have been then a very valuable tool for chopping wood and such. Whereas, in fact, they have found burials with these axes and they were never once used to chop wood. They were used for other things. In particular, in this case, we think they may have been part of a status symbol. You know, here is a unique thing. Um, we do that today with unique things, right. right? Yeah. And so it's just a good example of how people didn't just accept what was given to them and used it as intended. They had their own ways of adapting to material culture and how we can look at the patterns of how these things were used to learn about people, right? And so this is the same thing with, in this case as well. And I will say, I really like the opening of this chapter. He highlights everybody leaves something behind no matter how humble your beginnings or how humble your ends you kind of we all leave a mark on this earth no matter how tiny it is and i think you know that's kind of the essence of archaeology in my mind we're trying to study the the everyday person kind of yeah and so he t starts to talk about creolization and this is a term i haven't heard for a long time i it, this was really cool to me because I love New Orleans. And when you hear New Orleans, you think Creole. When And I had, grew, grew up in South Florida and I had Haitian friends and they spoke Creole. and Which is a culture in its own Right. Realm. And I've always thought of it as a culture. I never really thought about how that culture was formed. And Creolization kind of gets at that. And, and in this case, it simply means over a long-term contact, you'll start to see aspects of cultures mixing with each other. Yeah, not only do they mix, but they become distinct from the original cultures that created them. So African culture and Anglo culture in this case created a very distinctive culture that you can't really just say anymore is a mixing of these two cultures. It's become completely separate from them. And he does make a good point that this mixing is something that goes both ways. Right. Points that we've talked about already in this book Porches and bandos, in particular, yeah. are two examples of things in our culture today that are directly tied to African origins. And right. it's so cool because they're so prolific in our culture. <laughs> I never knew porches were of African origin. I was surprised yeah. by that. I had no idea. I'm from southern states where every house has a porch, but I also have family in Europe 
And when I start thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, you don't see porches in Europe. Right. We have three aspects of African-American culture we're going to look at in this chapter in particular. That's housing, foodways, and ceramics, which includes smoking pipes. Just kind of give you some idea of how we're going to structure this. So we start off with buildings, and he goes into shotgun houses, um, which we already talked about a little bit. He talks about them as a creolized form, too. So the front porch and the entrance, I had to look up Arawak. He calls them Arawak Indian houses. This is a group of indigenous cultures in like the Caribbean and um, southern South America, I guess. And then you have, you know, French building techniques and floor plans derived from Africa. So all these kind of things mixed together. And so creolization is not just like the culture itself, but also the material culture stemming from that culture, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And shotgun houses are a good example of that. And so these start to show up in New Orleans in the 1810s with the influx of people from Haiti in this case. And so these early ones look exactly like Haitian shotgun houses and uh, have diverged since. And like you said, they have roots with other groups as well. And they just spread across the country from there. I don't know how far, but I know they're very common in the South or we're very common at least. Yeah. I know here in Tallahassee, you can still see some of them like Mm -hmm. uh, in Frenchtown which I guess kind of makes sense when you look at the origins of the shotgun house. And I would assume they would go up into like Appalachia too, but I don't know that for sure. But if anybody, you know, comment, tell us where you've seen shotgun houses. We're curious. Yeah. Send us a photo. Yes. Photos. We love (laughs) photos. And so then he moves on to talking about how, uh, how building practices kind of varied amongst African-American groups from region to region in the Americas. He says in the Chesapeake and South Carolina areas, they weren't able to make their... Mm, hold on. I found this a little confusing. You know, when we think of, say, slave cabins on plantations, that even though it might, might not be readily evident, uh, we would think of them as probably being more European in flavor <laughs> because of the fact that these were slaves building them probably by direction of the slave owner. But that is apparently not exactly the case. It's not Mm -hmm. as cut and dry as that, that you do find, even though they were more European over time, if you look at them, they're not identical to other structures of that type that aren't related to like African-American or slaves living in plantation slave quarters. Well, this is where I got a little confused, too, because he does make a connection between for in the north, northern slave states, enslaved people kind of started off as almost indentured servants. And then when indentured servants' dwellings were moved to separate from the wealthy person's dwellings, so were the dwellings of the enslaved people. And in his case, I think he's saying we tended to see more adaptation or adoption of European patterns in that situation because they lived with Europeans for a while. Right. Yeah. And then slowly kind of diverged. Whereas in the case of places where basically went straight to, I think, chattel slavery, there is more retention of some African traditions. I'm not sure about in the buildings, though. Maybe he was talking about other aspects when he's talking about that. I think both. But he did doesn't give like a ton of very explicit examples. There were some some things in this chapter where I feel like uh, he talks about like acts of you know defiance and architecture and things like that. 
Was it an act of defiance or was it this is what I am more comfortable with or this is what I'm used to? I don't know that you can explicitly always say, oh, this was an act of defiance just because something is different. Mm -hmm. There's many different reasons. And it could have been an act of defiance, but I would just want to see more evidence of that. He does finally say that one dwelling probably had wood and clay chimneys. Finally. Finally. (laughs) And he actually has a pretty cool story about it because essentially there's uh, someone who did some experimental archaeology and built one and set it on fire. And essentially the way these are designed is they would lean away from the structure with supports. And if it was ever caught on fire, which I assume happened. Probably regularly. regularly. Yeah. You would knock the supports away and the chimney would collapse away from the home. Which, I mean, while a simple engineering situation, it's pretty genius and efficient. So I think they're pretty cool. But I also, I'm not clear on why he thinks there were no sign of chimneys in so many other places. Because he does say also that in certain situations, there wouldn't be a sign. Like, right. But we already talked about, like, there, I bet there would be. Well, and I mean, there's so many different factors, too. I mean, we know that not everything survives the archaeological record. It depends on the soil and how uh, right. disturbed but in, in it that is. In case, you would say there was no evidence of. Right. And I'm, I have a problem with absolutes mm-hmm. anyways. Unless you give me a bunch of evidence, I want a whole pile of evidence. If you give me an absolute, I'm, a, I'm going to question it. Yep. That's just my nature, I guess. He does describe the Kingsmill Plantation in Virginia. I don't know that we need to go in too much specific detail on this unless you have something that popped out to you. No, uh, it's interesting. Yes. Give it, it is, a read. It is good. He does once again state that origination of the porch is West African, which I thought was a little strange. I felt like we've already covered that. He just really likes porches. He porches really and banjos. Like so I think we actually skipped past this in the previous one, but conversation about shotgun houses again reminded me that he observed that the Parting Ways buildings were actually less like shotgun houses in other settings, even though uh, some of the some of the details, like the twelve foot standard, was was present. The doorways were located, at least for the photo we had, they're always located on the long side, like you would see with Anglo-American houses. And so his interpretation was this was simply due to a limitation in materials available to them and, and poverty. It occurred to me that this could be even a intended as a almost a sign of being part of a community. That's what that see, that's the interpretation I would naturally right. be drawn to is this was a sign that they were just trying to quote fit in, you know, yeah. and And of course they I don't I don't assume that they ever thought they would, but declaring look we are the same in these ways is probably safer than saying look how different we are right yeah and you know we've seen evidence of that in other i think it was in four lost cities we talked a little bit about uh the outside of the building looking like one way and the interior looking different there was the grand gardens and stuff people would have in their what would you call it center of the house Courtyard. Courtyard. There we go. You know, but the rest of like the parts that the public would see would be fancy and ornate. But then you go to like the more private areas of the house and it's more bland and minimal because they put their money and their efforts towards the things that people would see. Mm-hmm. Heck, I did this when I had when I bought my house and guests were coming. I painted the doors yeah. <laughs> that everybody would see and left the closets and the interior like bedroom doors unpainted. So I get yeah. it. But that's all I have for the building section. It's very good. It does go on with the descriptions a bit more, but it's not as 
it's easier to follow or picture in my head than some of the architectural descriptions before, I would say. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think it also helps that you and I are probably of all the architecture, architectural styles in this book, you and I are probably most familiar with shotgun houses. That's probably true as well. Yes. Next, we move on to foodways, which we like a lot, I think. I just like food in general. Yeah. So when it comes to enslaved people, records would tell us they only ever got to eat rations that were given to them. Right. Archaeology, of course, once again, shows it's a lot more complicated than that. So at Cannons Point Plantation, they have two cabins with an overseer's cabin between them, and they got to excavate each type of cabin, basically. So one enslaved person's cabin, one overseer's cabin, and the planter's cabin. Uh, of course, each was very different, as you might expect. But in the enslaved cabin, what some of the things they found was a bit of glass, they think, from windows. So there were some windows, probably some hardware indicating shutters. And then the refuse was a lot of different kinds of animal bones. And also some signs of firearms, which if you follow historic records, you would see that there was never any access to firearms whatsoever. Yeah, and I've even visited like plantation museums where they talk about how the slaves would not have access to firearms. But then I would also like to see the refuse on those plantations because if they had wild, even if you just found wild game, how are they going to get that without some type of weapon? Yeah, yeah. So uh, they found 22 different species of animal in the refuse here, which is that's a quite a variety. Yeah, I feel like that's probably greater variety than what most people would eat today. <laughs> yeah, and it also suggests a lot of time to do the hunting and gathering for all this stuff. And so plantations ran on a task system. People were assigned a specific area to attend, and once that area was done, then they had free time. Uh, but he does a good job of emphasizing that this was not generosity. This was simply a economic decision by the slave owner. You could provide less rations if you provided them time to go hunting or to tend their own gardens because they could supplement what you provided them so you didn't have to provide them with as much. And you could just give them the cheapest stuff or the stuff that they can't get on their own and then the rest is up to you. Yeah. Right. And it sounds like this is, again, where an opportunity to look at the documentation versus what you're finding in the archaeological record. And it apparently shows that overall, the rations didn't really include enough protein to sustain someone who was doing the manual labor that a slave would have been doing, especially to that degree. So they would have had to, you know, supplement their rations. Also, like you think about it, they would need time too to uh, process the food that they it's not like today where you just go to the grocery store and pick up ground beef <laughs> you know yeah. they had to process the animals they had to find ways to preserve them and things like that so it was more time consuming than what we may realize so all the animals also were chopped the bones were chopped which as we saw with the early american period is an indication of stews and that makes sense and that does contrast with the planter's house which would have been sawed. Yeah, they said yeah. we're, we're sawed um, shows more signs of fish and game and generally higher status food. Yeah. The refuse in the enslaved cabin included teeth, scapula, pelvis, and forelegs. He says the Anglo-American food style contrasts with the foods in the diet of the enslaved people, which has deep African roots. And I thought, well, that's also not very well established, I don't think, at this point, right? Because it's also what was available to them. Yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't be sure on that. 
honestly. You know, the typical saying goes like a lot of Southern food comes from African origins, but this has me questioning even that a little bit. Was it African origins or enslaved origins? And how are those two, what are the differences and commonalities between the two? Yeah. Yeah. And and what's the relation between food scarcity and the kinds of foods people are eating? Right. If you have trouble getting food, then you'd eat more unfavorable parts. Right. And I mean, it could have been a preference. Yeah. It's just, it's more complicated than I think you oversimplified there. Yeah. Then we get into what I think will be Barbara's favorite conversation. I do love Kelowna Ware. Yes. Yes. And I think we've touched on what Kelowna Ware was in our last episode. Let's go ahead and cover it at least briefly again. Yeah. So Kelowna Ware, I'm more familiar with it in the sense of Native Americans, but it generally means that a one group of people, in this case, Africans, take a different style of ceramics so in this case european more european style ceramics but they make them with more of their traditional manufacturing styles so it's essentially a mixing of two different cultures and how you manufacture the ceramics and what types of ceramics you utilize so you might get a candlestick for example but it's made more in an, a different manufacturing style whether it be coil ceramics if you're familiar with ceramics or it may be just even completely different. Uh, teapots. Yeah, teapots apparently. are a good example of it. But they're handmade, and a lot of times they're fired using like open pit firing and stuff like that rather than a kiln. Yeah. And they're unglazed, so they're not shiny. Right, yeah. What did you think about the whole conversation around these not being Native American at all? Is that a regional thing, or is that something... I was wondering about that the whole time, what you thought of that. It kind of struck me from left field because like I said I'm less familiar with this area of the country and less familiar with how Kelowna Ware originating from like Africans would look and what it would you know but I mean I was thinking he's talking about a different region maybe in this region there were uh, Native American still are Native American tribes here whereas in this region at that time they mostly died out or been pushed away. And so he he, he was talking about Kelowna Ware found at African sites, but he seemed to think they were trading with Indians. Or not he, but... Original interpretations yeah. were that. Yeah, which to me, I would say it sounds racist, but that would be an unprecedented type of racism saying Indians made something over Africans. I feel like I f- you can't really say that called that racism, but it... I feel like it presumes a lot when you say, oh, we're finding all these things at this site, but it can't possibly be these people that made them. I feel like this may have just been a matter of not a lot of evidence when it was first identified. And, you know, they have ceramics made by Native American people, unglazed, lower fired, maybe using some similar techniques, especially at least on a glance without much evidence. They don't necessarily have the same from African Americans. Now, if they had got studied pottery in Africa, as someone eventually did, then they would have probably made that connection better. Yeah, yeah. Again, as we've been talking about, uh, bias mm-hmm. can really mess with your data. <laughs> and this was, you know, I have to remember too. This was in 1962. You can't email someone in Africa and ask them to send you some photos or look up the current research on African archaeology in Africa. You know, so. Maybe that was a factor. I don't know. But I 
also like this was on plantations. And so I'm trying to think in what situation they believe African slaves would be interacting with Native Americans on essentially plantation property. I think the interpretation, and I'm not defending it, to be clear, I think the interpretation was the plantation owners were doing the, the buying. That's true. He did mention that. Yeah. But regardless, it is still a bit of a leap to the, not be considered that maybe this is actually not Native American. Yeah. Essentially, though, the evidence he presents for this not being Native American is when Colonel Ware became popular, there were not enough people in the area to be making it, is what it comes down to. Not enough Native American people in the area. And that seemed like pretty good evidence. And then eventually someone does actually study, like I said, pottery in Africa and realize, like, this is the same stuff. Right. But again, it's a good evidence of science working as science does. They gathered more data. They did more, essentially, research. And... They came to a different conclusion based on more accurate evidence. Right. Even if, and he says this, not everyone agrees to this day. So you will have people hold on to ideas. That is what science is supposed to do, though, is help us to overcome that human tendency to just hold on to ideas no matter what. Which is really hard to do, especially if you've made your whole career out of some a specific theory or thought or right. whatever. It can be hard to... Scientists are still people. We are. The process yeah. helps us as a whole get past that tendency, Yeah, I would say. But I had a bit of an aha moment because I felt like he was almost repeating himself a lot and really like covering a lot of details and a little redundant in how he covered things. And I think, oh, I felt maybe he's actually defending this position here more than other situations. Yeah, That could be why. Yeah, when you put it in context of when the book was written, too. Yeah. Like, some of these were very uh, provocative for the time, you know, and new ideas. Sometimes right. you got to really re reiterate them over and over and over again. Uh, he talks a little bit about cooking practices. Also, he says some West African roots. Um, particularly large starchy jars with carbohydrates, things like that, smaller containers with vegetables and meats and spices. And food was basically consisted of the carbohydrates uh, in a bowl with the stew or whatever put over the top of it. Which sounds absolutely delicious. It does. He says, uh, <laughs> basically, you can kind of picture gumbo yeah. as a start for that. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Also, he points out that okra is of African origin, which is a definitely a very unique Southern food is not originally from the South, as we have learned. But it's so tasty. It is very tasty, especially when you fry it, because then it doesn't have any nutritional value. <laughs> Everything the, is better fried. <laughs> that's the Southern way. Everything is better fried. Uh, and then finally, I think, yeah, finally move on to clay pipes. And clay pipes had a bit of initial interpretation as... The colonial wear, although this makes a little more sense, because as you were saying, the problem with colonial wear is like this was used by enslaved people. Why would you not think the enslaved people were making it? And in this case, the pipes were made by enslaved people, we know now, to be sold on the market. Right. And so the interpretation that this could have been Native American to start with is maybe a little more reasonable. Does that sound fair or not? Do you still have a problem with it? <laughs> it seems to change it's maybe a little more reasonable yeah i guess i'll go with it i'll go with it okay yeah i can cut that out if you want me to no it's fine okay we are allowed to disagree tristan okay um, i was just interested in what you thought too i i mean it was a cool conversation i might the whole time i was like "Ooh, tristan is gonna love this 
Did you enjoy this part? Pa the pipes? Yeah. It was okay. Oh, I thought you would be all about it. I mean, pipes are cool, but I'm not necessarily my thing. If it was nails. If it was nails, okay. then I would Fair be- Fair enough. You guys would, you know, we'd be two hours in and I'd still be talking about nails. So. You, yeah. You will learn more about nails talking to Tristan <laughs> than you ever wanted to know. Basically, the, the message there is every archaeologist has their little nuanced thing they know lots about, and you got to be careful asking about it because we will go on if you let us. And there are archaeologists out there who will talk about clay pipes oh. until oh, they yes. are blue in the face. And they are fascinating. They are really cool. Yeah. And I, what fascinates me most about them is just the design elements. Yeah. But like the manufacturing processes and things like that and how big the hole was in the pipe. Like, I'm like, cool. But I mean, what I can tell you archaeologically is really important. Well, I like, this isn't part of this one, but I like the kaolin pipes. Yeah. And th so those essentially had long stems with notches. For hygiene, you just snap off a piece of it and throw it away. We find tons of the pieces. Yeah. We don't find many of the bulls. And apparently there's accounts of people down to the last bit burning their nose or something on the pipe because they're they're smoking the last little bit of it. But these pipes in particular used Anglo-American technology. So uh, a lot of mold made stuff, it seemed like, and then a few different design techniques. And some of those design techniques could be done by anybody, but other design techniques he seemed to think were pretty definitely African in origin. Yeah. And apparently there is a, a suggested renaming at some point it's unclear of when exactly and uh, like what year this happened, but they suggested calling these Chesapeake pipes instead of colonial wear. Again, I wish he had pictures of these pipes or drawings yeah. or something, because like you said, I'm more familiar with the kaolin pipes. And I kept imagining those in my head, which kind of interfered with my internal dialogue <laughs> <laughs> regarding these pipes. What I ended up picturing was a kind of a red clay pipe with a kind of a white substance brushed over the top or something to kind of highlight the pattern, essentially. Yeah, that's kind of where I went with it, too. So definitely fancier than the kaolin pipes we're used to. Yeah. Those are basically discardable objects, and these are not necessarily. Right. Uh, one last thing about the pipes is most of them were made while enslaved people still lived with the Europeans in that time period. And once the two were separated, the technology became mostly European in technology and design. And I think he's concluding that it may not have been made by African people anymore at that point. I was wondering that, or I was wondering if they were maybe made by African people, but marketed to Anglo. I think they always were. Yeah. So, I mean. But maybe there was more direct control or less tolerance of individualism. Right. In that scenario. I'm not sure what he thought was going on. He didn't really give a explanation for what might be happening there. Yeah. But. I think his observation of the pattern is fair. Uh, but he concludes by making the point that we shouldn't assume that this earlier system was the same as the plantation ones um, that we are used to hearing about. While, yes, it still was slavery and it still was problematic, it was a very different system in the way it operated. It may have had more in common with indentured servitude. Our final chapter for this book and for this episode is Small Things Forgotten. So just with the title of the book, and even though it doesn't explicitly say it, this is just straight up the conclusion for the book. And he sums things up pretty nicely. And he talks about kind of how important it is to explore these cultures, these American cultures, and why we need to talk about them and understand them on a deeper level. Because there is a tendency to view these with, with rose-colored goggles. And this is a, you know, see that as a simpler time, 
when neighbors knew each other and everyone was happier and boy, wouldn't it be nice to live in that time. And in the reality, it is it was just as messy as today in different ways. But the point is that if you tend to view the past that way, then it's easy to see today as worse than it is and as something that can't be fixed. Yeah. I mean, you know, we and you see it in the movies and in a lot of books and things like this. People, you know, had these altruistic values and they were neighbors helping neighbors and stuff like that. When in reality, both historic and archaeological evidence supports that they were relatively suspicious of outsiders and not really tolerant to change. Change happens slowly. And I mean, especially compared to what we're used to now with all the technology we have available to us. But I, I did like this chapter just because you, you and I have touched on before. We ha hear a lot of people come up to us and be like, man, I was born in the wrong time. I really wish I was born then. I'm like, oh, well, you haven't studied that time period, have I like you? my anesthesia. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, yes. And other things. Many, many other things. Right. Oh, my favorite example was the morning room in historic houses. You remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I had actually never heard this. I've been on a lot of historic home tours, and I've never had a tour guide point out the morning room to me. So maybe since this book has been written, we've realized that's not a thing. <laughs> but it was apparently a, a room in the house that would have been used to give birth. And, you know, the mother would have this special room in the house that just for this purpose and which as after reading this book you probably think well that sounds silly why would you go through all that effort to have a room that may be used occasionally right and it's based on our modern day assumptions that you'd have the privacy um, when giving birth because that's how we have today right you're in your hospital room and only those people that need to be with you are with you and then also we want that clean and sterile kind of situation did not exist. It goes to like when you walk through a living history museum or, um, you know, a, a house museum and you see the very sterile kind of staged environment. That's not what it was like. This is a lived in place. And I love his example of like the living history museums with the candle dipping and the clean and orderly I've quarters. Got, I got that quote here, actually. Homes that seem to have been inhabited by people who subsisted largely on the herbs that grew in the adjacent garden and who dipped enough candles to light a small town. Right. <laughs> well, those museums definitely have their place and they're very valuable in providing us with at least an idea of what... And he explicitly says he's not picking on them as right. bad. Yeah. But the idea the sterile environment is kind of giving us a wrong idea of what the past was like. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't simpler. It was yeah. far from it. <laughs> it was very complicated. Yeah. I had an interesting observation. So he commented on how in American culture two to three hundred years ago was so dramatically different from today that if we were to go back and visit it now, it'd be like visiting a foreign country today. Yeah. That's how dramatically different he says it is. And it occurred to me, this made me think back to Four Lost Cities once again. In that case, we're looking at some cities or civilizations that were going for a couple thousand years, several thousand years. I wonder how much change you might have seen in that time from just a hundred year to a hundred year period. And we see material culture change, but I think because it's such so old and we don't have historic records to go with it, we don't usually know what that means. Yeah, that's true. It is possible, too, that this period was seeing more change than you would necessarily see. Uh, in more stable times because people were establishing cities and things in this area. But I, I still have to wonder, I feel like, you know, if you're talking about a city that's been existing for 4,000 years, 
I bet you have just as much change. It does. I mean, it does make you wonder what it would be like if we had more written documentation to go with those more ancient cultures. Yeah. And I, I thought, go, talking about the documentation, one thing that I found really interesting was how we see changing worldviews in documents as well as the archaeological record. He talks about the Mayflower Compact, which stresses larger community and the individual is not necessarily considered. And then you get the Declaration of Independence, which stresses individual rights and freedoms and just how in that short amount of time, the the worldview that these people had was changing. And that, of course, falls in line with the larger historical context of what was going on at the time. Sure. But they suited the needs of the people who were using those documents at that time. And it got me, of course, and this is a whole larger conversation, but thinking about like the Constitution and, you know, the reason we have amendments and things like that, they're living documents. Um, yeah. Yeah, how yeah. long can a document live until it becomes a completely different document? That's true. And you think about it, too, from, you know, a period of a couple hundred years, they had completely changed their worldview. That document now is a couple hundred years old. We see some tension around using those old documents as our worldview today sometimes. When you grew, were growing up in school, and I know we went to school in completely different areas of the country, were you ever, I don't, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but taught about the melting pot? Oh, yeah. Okay. I just, I, I was curious if that was... A, I think that was a strong 80s, 90s thing, if yeah. it's not still today even. But, I mean, it's... <laughs> I love, yet America was not a melting pot in the 18th century and it's not one today. Yep. And I kind of, I thought it was just interesting because there's a lot, that whole idea of melting pot is very problematic. And you can Google like, you know, the melting pot theory and the problems it has. And it um, essentially is saying, you know, we're all going to come together from all over the world, you know, America, you know, all the immigrants that come here. It also assumes equality. Well, equality, right. it assumes equality, and it assumes that we're going to create our own unique culture, especially essentially our Creole American culture. <laughs> you know, like, right. they're trying to say that there's one American culture, and we all need to kind of conform to that idea of what an American culture should look like. And that's number one not realistic at all. That's not going to ever happen. And why would you want it to happen, in, especially in a country that supposedly celebrates our differences and is based on immigration? And, mm -hmm. you know, there's just so many problems with it. But if you want to dive down a deep Google hole, <laughs> go ahead and Google that. There's um, various articles. It apparently originally came from a play that was written, I think, in like the 1800s or something like that, which kind of fits with what was going on in that time period. But it just kind of continued. But we don't hear much about it anymore. This is really the first time I've heard about it since I was a young kid in school. Well, he wrote this in the 90s. Yeah. Right. That makes yeah. sense. But I will say, even in the 90s, he was like, we're not a melting pot. Right. So there was pushback from yes. the people who studied these things. Yes. He does uh, talk about a little bit about primary sources and how they're flawed and not objective and how it's important to rely on multiple sources of information. And going along those lines, I think, as we've pointed out in previous episodes, archaeology isn't necessarily getting at one individual person. It's getting at kind of the 
general idea of what life would have been like during a specific time or at a specific place. We rarely can do archaeology of a specific person, even if we know that a specific person was at this specific site. If they're unless this person was living in the woods by themselves for multiple years, we're going to find evidence of other people there as well. And you can look at like family groups sometimes, yeah, more likely. But it, even well, then, like at parting ways, yeah. right? At parting ways, we know it's a specific group of people, but it would be really hard to get it the archaeology of one of those individuals. Even knowing that, it was challenging, as you saw, because it was people lived there after that group of people lived there too. And so that made it more difficult. And we were, as far as I'm aware, from what he described, we were able to figure out who was who a bit. But it just adds challenge to it for sure. And then uh, to end up the chapter in the book for us had a very nice quote from Aditz. It is terribly important that the small things forgotten be remembered. For in the seemingly little and insignificant things that accumulate to create a lifetime, the essence of our existence is captured. And archaeology. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I mean... That's what the whole point of the book is, and that's what it's all about. So now that we've finished it, Barbara, what did you think of the book? I really enjoyed it. I mean, obviously, it's a little dated, but I thought, especially considering how dated it was, Dietz did a really good job of explaining concepts that then would have been pretty new and maybe not going with the grain. And I thought it was fun, like I said earlier, just to read it and see how Number one, sometimes we're still kind of debating the same things, even though we have more information <laughs> on specific topics. It's also interesting to see how African-American archaeology and the archaeology of the enslaved has progressed as time has gone on. And just to see how even then, it's just nice to see that somebody understood, I think, the greater value of archaeology. It's not just about finding the cool things. It's not just finding the cool things and locking them away in a lab or a curation facility somewhere. It's about using them to learn about the past, but also how they can potentially be used in a greater like social context, like the melting pot thing. Overall, yeah. I enjoyed it. Obviously, there were some things. I wish he had pictures. <laughs> yeah, and we had some some critiques here and there, but by and large, I think it aged very well. And frankly... I would not be surprised if a lot of universities still assigned it to their students, especially as an introduction to archaeology. I think they should. It does a really good job of explaining what archaeology is and how it's useful. And it's very readable. It does bog down in the details here and there, which probably is why I don't remember some of these things. He goes on about. way too long about banjos. Yes, he but definitely he... <laughs> does. But overall, yeah, I think it's a really good read. And he's a really entertaining writer for the most part. I really yeah. like his style. Little snippets of humor in there occasionally. Yeah. Very quiet humor. Yeah. But yeah, there's a reason I gave this book to my dad when I was a student. Because, uh, you know, as all parents of archaeologists, they weren't really sure what it was I was doing. And this book, I think, explained it very nicely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Maybe I should give it to a couple people I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the audiobook. Yeah. <laughs> so that wraps up Small Things Forgotten. I really enjoyed this one in particular. And I'm ready to go on to our next one, though. And what is that, Barbara? Okay, so we're switching gears. We're going to be reading a book called Stealing History, Tomb Raiders, Smugglers, and the Looting of the Ancient World. It's by Roger Atwood. And I had started reading this book. I haven't read it yet, but it does take place in 
for the most part, it takes place in Peru from what I can tell thus far. And it's definitely kind of switching gears from what we just read, but I think everybody will really enjoy it. From what you've told me about, it sounds fascinating because it's not just about how terrible the situation is, it's about all the complicated socio and economic factors that lead into the looting of sites and why it's happening and why it's not an easy solution. And I think it's very relevant because we hear a lot about this today, especially like things that are taking place in the Middle East and things that are taking place in South and Central America and honestly, things that are taking place here in the United States. Well, and with just the repatriation of yeah. artifacts so that th people have bought illegally here in the U.S. If you hear stories on the news about looting or repatriation and things like that, and it kind of piques your interest and you want to know more, I think this is a really good book to give you an overview of the issue in depth. Yeah, it sounds very interesting the way you've talked about it to me. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to read how many chapters this first time? This book is broken into three different parts, but we're going to split part one up a little bit. We're going to read the introduction and then chapters one through three. So introduction, looking for a tomb, 23 feet down in the excavators which any chapter called The Excavators yeah. immediately piques my interest. Yeah, I think it'll be enjoyable. And as far as availability for this book goes, uh, it is in a variety of formats, including paperback and Kindle. So it is nice and available in that regard. I do not know if it has a audiobook yet, but honestly, I wouldn't expect it to necessarily. But I'm looking forward to it. And until next time, we'll start with that one. Happy reading, everyone. Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about FPAN at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.